what's happened. Got a shower and my nose fell out. Let's have a look. I was booing myself. <laughs> <laughs> Poo was coming out of every hole in my body, <laughs> like liquid. Well, three times well, it's totally clean. Really this course is running, I'm on my way. So I kicked cancer's ass in the last three weeks. I barely knocked it over. Hi, my name's Becky. Thanks for tuning in and listening to After, a new podcast about looking, learning and living life after. You join me here on the very first episode of the After Podcast. I've thought and talked about starting this podcast for quite some time now. And for whatever reasons, I can't quite put my finger on it. I just kept putting it off and chickening out of actually sitting down and getting this first episode recorded so we can get it out there. And really, it just just never felt like the right time. I'm not sure why, but... um, I'm not sure if there's even a right time to to start these things, is there? Unless there's like a campaign or something. Well, there's no campaign here and I think I've talked about it long enough and thrown ideas around to people and asked their opinions and things. And now, uh, right now, seems like the right time to, to go. Seems good to go. Good place to start. So this episode, it's just going to be an introduction really into what, possessed me to start this podcast, um, why I wanted to do it, what was the inspiration, where the name came from. Um, I might start to tell some of my story, I probably will start to tell some of my story because it kind of explains um, a little bit about what I might talk about in future and the catalyst of why I might talk about things in future episodes, but it'll definitely be brief because my story, um, my shared story, it's it's long and complicated and it's really in depth and even even now I know that it's going to be quite a brief overview um, and definitely something that we can explore further in more depth in the future. So to introduce myself properly, my name is Becky. I am a 38-year-old mummy or mum as they both have seem they both seem to have started calling me now to two children. My daughter Lily, who is 11, and my son Sam, who is 5. I'm a lone parent, and I do use that word lone very carefully, and I will go into that in the future um, as to why I use that word, and I'm a widow. Two years ago today, on October the 10th, 2017, my husband of 11 years, yes, I was a young bride, Chris died at the age of 35 after a two-year battle with a rare bone cancer, Ewing sarcoma. And although we had been told the devastating news at the beginning of 2017 that Chris would not get better and that his illness was terminal, his death still came much sooner than any of us were expecting or any of us were really ready for. And we really, really, really thought he had more time. I definitely did think he had more time. And the timing of the this first episode, and this is, it's not an accident. I needed something to distract me from his anniversary coming up. Um, and something positive that I wanted to put my energy into. So that's why it felt like a good time to put this episode out on his two year anniversary. 
Unfortunately, Chris's wasn't the only death in our family in quite a short space of time that year. On September the 30th, Chris's grand Maeve passed away after a short illness on October the 8th at the age of 87. Two days before Chris, my granddad James died suddenly whilst on holiday in Cyprus of a heart attack. And as you can imagine, it was just a devastating and overwhelming time for our family. In time, I will talk about Maeve and James and the impact their deaths has had on us. But for now, the focus of what I'm going to talk about over the next few episodes is my husband Chris and the impact of his death. Chris was finally diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma on Christmas Eve of 2015. I say finally as he had been misdiagnosed and treated for several months by the GP with gout. Ewing's is quite a rare cancer, so can be quite difficult to spot. Well, it is difficult to spot. It's actually the most common bone cancer. But at the time of Chris's diagnosis, there were only 75 cases of the disease diagnosed in the UK each year. And those were usually found in young people and adolescents, so people with fast-growing bones. Unlike me, Chris was into fitness. (laughs) He went to the gym, he played rugby, he'd recently completed a triathlon, he'd ran several half marathons, he didn't really have the attention span for a full 26 miles, he said it would bore him. He swam and he cycled. He actually did quite a lot of that for charity. He first felt pain in his ankle in the February or March of 2015. I can't quite remember the exact dates. Most of 2015 and the dates of doctor's appointments and things were a bit of a blur till the back end of the year. So he felt pain after playing a game of rugby and unusually for him as he had quite a high pain threshold and it would take a lot for him to go to A&E but he did take himself to A&E for an x-ray because he thought he might have chipped a bone. But there's no evidence of a broken bone or a chip or anything like that, or anything as sinister as a tumour. Although we were told that those were that would have been the first sign of the cancer, and it would have already been growing at that stage, but there's no way that anyone, unless a specialist had looked at the x-ray, would have been able to spot it. The diagnosis really came as a ball out of, a, out of the blue, And at one stage, they thought that it might not be Ewing's sarcoma and it could be a lymphoma, which would have been easier to treat and had a better survival rate. But after a few more tests, we were told on Christmas Eve 2015 that it was that the Ewing's sarcoma was confirmed diagnosis. The treatment for Ewing's is quite gruelling, as all chemotherapies. This one seemed especially harsh. Chris had to have 14 rounds of chemotherapy. Each session of chemotherapy was over two nights, three days, which meant he had to stay in hospital. So he was treated at Christie's. Um, so he stayed at that time in Christie's for like three days. Could have gone into four days sometimes. So three nights, four days, which would that thrilled him. Um, as any hospital stay would have. And he did that every three weeks. He had eight sessions from January. And then in the May of 2016, he had his left leg amputated above the knee. His tumour was in his ankle and had grown to invade his shin, bones in his feet, the bones in his legs and the surrounding soft tissue, muscle and and nerves. So he's in quite a lot of pain, especially with the tumour invading the nerves, you can imagine. After his surgery, he had a short recovery break 
which he actually loved because he wasn't on chemotherapy and he could taste again and start his hair started to grow back and things like that. And then he had to have a further six sessions of chemo. The same same regime, so more time in hospital away from us every three weeks. Um, and that finished in November of 2016. And at that stage, there was no further evidence of the disease. Um, he rang the bell in Christie's after his last chemo session and he walked out on a prosthetic leg. He had vowed at the beginning when he realised he was going to lose his leg that he would walk into Christie's in January and he would walk out of there, come hell or high water, and that is what he did. And, and honestly, at the time, we thought we were the luckiest people around considering how long the cancer... We knew how long the cancer had already been around. It had been there since the beginning of January... Beginning of... Not January, but the beginning of 2015... Um, and we knew how aggressive it was and how rare it was we were looking forward we'd planned a holiday big holiday cruise um chris had booked us to iceland although i'm still to this day do not know how we would have achieved that on a prosthetic leg <laughs> on ice i don't know i still don't know how we, but he was adamant with me. um so we were looking forward we really really thought that we were over the worst of Shortly after the end of treatment, um, Chris started to feel some pain in his lower back. I thought I thought he was doing too much because uh, he was up walking on his prosthetic and he felt like he was just pushing himself too much. So he got in touch with his specialist nurse and they were really, really good. The consultant had him back in straight away for a scan just to check that everything was okay. Um, and the results for that really were, were what I thought. that um, They said he was probably doing too much. There was something on one of his vertebrae, but it didn't look like it was anything disease related. Well, they said it wasn't anything disease related and to just rest and see how he went because his back was still hurting. They then did a further more in-depth scan. So I went to that scan routinely and I went to work and normally I would have gone with him and he was kept in hospital straight away. They kept him in and he was there for four nights at that time, I think. And it was discovered from those scans that he had that the little mark on the vertebrae four weeks before was now a 10 centimetre long tumour along the vertebrae and into the muscle around it and that there were a further two smaller tumours at two centimetres each in his lungs. So, uh, we knew straight away that the cancer would now be incurable. We'd done our fair share of googling. We'd been warned previously about reoccurrence statistics, what the likelihood of reoccurrence was, where it would reoccur if it did reoccur, um, and the chances of survival after that. We'd done our fair share of googling. Doctors don't like to really put a time frame on anything as we well that was our experience anyway as there's so many variables within treatment and within individuals and so many factors but Chris being Chris he was just adamant and he was he just demanded from the doctor and he asked the doctor what was the usual what was the average statistically um like well, how long he had to live, basically. And he was told that he could be looking at a two-year survival rate if they could get the tumours under control. There were still treatment options at that stage. But if they couldn't get the tumours under control, then the survival rate was likely to be six to 12 months. Well, as you can imagine, being told something that is something like that is just... I can't even put into words, really. Oh, dear. Anyway, uh, Chris underwent 
further chemotherapy. He was actually part of a trial. And that treatment seemed to be working for a while, um, which was absolutely brilliant. And within the, within the trial, he had scans after every two um, chemotherapy sessions. So of the first two scans, all the tumours had shrunk by over 50%. So the first 12 weeks, all the tumours had shrunk by 50%. So we, we actually thought he was beating the odds again and he was doing brilliantly. But on the final scan, after this course of treatment had finished in June 2017... The results showed that the cancer cells had become resistant to the chemo. I didn't actually realise that they could do that, the sneaky little feckers. But apparently they can become quite savvy to what's trying to destroy them and will mutate and change to become resistant to different types of chemotherapy. Which is why if you have one course of chemo- a certain type of chemotherapy, you're unlikely to be able to have that again because the cancer cells become resistant. You'll learn something. I learned all about these things that I didn't want to learn about. Anyway, the tumour in his back had started to grow again and there was now a third tumour that had grown from nothing out of nowhere and was now in one of his lungs and was now five centimetres. Over time, this new tumour in his lung grew at an absolutely ridiculous rate. It was so aggressive. It even stunned the doctors and the oncologists. Um, that was actually the tumour that caused his death in the October. So from the June to the October, it grew at such a rate that was the cause of his death. Chris died nine months after the reoccurrence was diagnosed. This is obviously a very, very brief overview over the years 2015 to 2017 I really would be able to talk about all the things that happened within that time for hours, like literally hours. There's experiences of a daily basis, there's extra hospital trips in there, there's physio trips, there's all sorts. So I'm not going to talk, go into too much detail now. It's something that I hope to explore and talk about in future episodes what Chris experienced going through treatment, what my experience and feelings were throughout that time. It really was one of the hardest things to try and hold everything together when the person I loved and needed the most, I mean, he was always a strong one, was going through something so horrific. And we always joked that it was typical of him to get a cancer that was tricky to treat. He couldn't just go and get himself a a cancer with good... Dr. Google statistics that could have been caught earlier. There's also how we coped as a family, how we explained things to the children who were 7 and 18 months old at the time Chris was diagnosed. I mean, Sam has no memories of life before cancer. He has memories of Chris going through treatment, he has memories of amputation and Chris being in a wheelchair, but he has no memories prior to that. So cancer is all cancer in our lives and then grief is all Sam has ever known. How we talk to them about what's going on, how we prepared them for the future, how they dealt with things and also what we did to make memories and to try and maintain a normal family life as we possibly could under the, under the circumstances. This really brings me on to why I wanted to start this podcast and to have a place where I could share what we've been through and what I've experienced and talk about about all things really, (laughs) starting up what can and are difficult conversations, but conversations that need to happen. 
the two years the two years since Chris died, in fact well, in fact the past four years, but especially since Chris died, has been well, I'm gonna use one of those old crappy cliches now, a massive roller coaster of emotions. We'd already been through so much during his treatment. Life as I had come to know it, it was just changed, shattered, irreparable. Everything was different and I knew I would have to approach everything differently and live my life differently. And it was really like the flick of a switch. I was plunged into an ocean of grief and no amount of knowing that the day was going to come is ever enough time to prepare you for it. It's still a shock because your brain never actually lets you believe that it's going to happen. You just all, Your brain kind of, to protect you, makes you think that it's not right, it's not going to die. And then it happens and you're all of a sudden plunged into darkness. And I call it an ocean of grief. Um, I've always found my grief comes in waves. So it can be in calm waters for quite a long time. And then a big tidal wave hits that like completely takes me out. And I've never really understood that eight stages, that lineal stages or whatever it is you read about. Because I think it's it's constant, evolving and like not lineal. It's not something you'll ever get to the end of. It's something that you just eventually, eventually learn to live with. Over the last two years, I've never, I've really never felt so alone. And I'm one of the lucky ones. I've got quite a good support network around me. And I'm really, really lucky in many ways as I have some wonderful friends who I genuinely do not know how I would have, how I would have survived without their support. But it really doesn't stop me feeling alone. And I sometimes feel like I'm the only one to have ever felt the way I feel. But I know in reality, I know that's not true. And that many of the things I experience and I feel are actually quite common. And not just after a loved one dies, but after other life-changing events. So be it an accident, the birth of a child, the move across the, a move across a country, or a separation or a relationship breakdown. I know these things are quite common feelings but I know that if I felt alone that there'll be someone out there feeling exactly the same way who might not have the support network that I do that I'm lucky enough to have and I've felt for some time that I want to be able to help other people and this is where the idea for this podcast came from because the only way I know to help and I do want to help others and I think that would help me in return is to have an open discussion about all these things and to have open and honest conversations about everything that surrounds. And because I'm coming from my point of view and I can only talk about my experiences for now, a loved one being ill, about death, about grief, about living through all of that and living after that. And I want to be able to share how I've coped and how I continue to cope and explore how different other people have coped and that might help me um, and how they've coped through their grieving and that might help me in return to that that might help someone else I also want to talk about practical things that I didn't even think about before this happened about death itself and about being there for a loved one or someone you know who is dying or going to die how you understand their wishes and talk about their wishes in the first place I always found it really difficult talking to Chris about these things 
and the amount of times that I kind of shut him down in conversation when he would talk about him not being around and I'd just shut him down so I just didn't want to think about it. How to plan a funeral because you really did not do not expect to be planning a funeral at 36 for your husband and where do you even start with that and what do you do and what's the right thing to do. So these are things we just don't think about or talk about and I want to share how I have coped with all that and dealt with all that. I'm also a big advocate about being open and honest with children about illness and death. So I want to discuss how I've talked to my two about everything that's happened and everything that went on and discuss how they've dealt with their grief and the change in our family dynamic. And I also want to have a look at the best ways we can support children and what support we have had and what help we've had. I also want to help people understand how they can support someone who is grieving and what that person needs you to do or not do or say or not say and the best ways you can go about just being kind (laughs) to support them or just simply how to approach them and talk to them. I really really feel like I lost all the things that I knew about myself. I have constantly questioned the things I thought I liked how I like to dress, what I like to look at, what I like to eat, what I like to watch. I question the person I am and who I thought I was and why people would want to spend any time with me. I've doubted my own voice and my own thoughts. I've second-guessed myself. I have become absolutely rubbish at making (laughs) any decision, which is probably why it's taken me so long to sit down and actually record this. I also want to have a look at the new things grief brings. So it's it's brought me a a couple of things that stand out um, that I'm learning to control and recognise the signs for, like anxiety and paranoia. I've never really suffered with anything like that. I'm quite a laid-back person, naturally, quite optimistic. Um, My grief also mimics symptoms of depression. I don't have depression, but it does mimic some symptoms of it within my grief. I worry all the time about the things that I'm doing and the feelings I have and whether they're normal and they should be a normal part of grief or if I'm the only person that could not stop ordering things from Amazon in the middle of the night. I became an influencer's dream because I would literally buy anything that anyone <laughs> anyone suggested. Um, and it's not it's actually quite a common thing, <laughs> believe it or not, and this is definitely something I'm going to discuss in more in more detail because I find it quite an amusing part of grief if not an expensive one Um, and just a little warning for anyone that might be joining that's newly bereaved um, who's listening uh, you can probably expect to get to know their postman and delivery drivers fairly well. Um, I've also had to begin a process of really understanding who I am again and what I want to achieve and how I want to live a good life and really how I want to just find a little bit of peace. I've had to learn a lot, not just about myself again. I've still not cracked this lone parenting. I'm failing quite often at it, really. I've got lots to talk about on that. And there's practical issues as well, like cooking. I I cannot cook 
well, I say I could, I cannot cook. I could not cook. I'm, I'm, my both kids are well fed, still going. I'm just not great at it. I just don't like it. Chris used to do all the cooking. I mean, even when he was poorly, he would oversee what I was doing with a very, very, very eagle eye. It would get on my nerves. But I was quite proud of myself when I learned how to cook a sausage and not burn it without having to Google the time how long it would take. Um, I've also had to learn quite quickly the best ways to support the children through grief. I've talked about this a little earlier, but this is so important to me about how to talk to children. Oh, it's been a bit doom and gloom, that, hasn't it? Um, Because it is quite a negative subject to cover, but in spite of all the negative feelings that grief brings, that you have to fight to overcome, and I've had to continue living, not just living, trying to thrive... I've literally been trying to live a happy life. Um, I really, really want to live a happy life so the kids can have happy memories and good childhoods. It's what we all deserve, really, I think. And I want to be able to show them that we can be happy and heartbroken at the same time. Those two things are not exclusive of each other. They can come together. I've done my best to show the kids how we can remember and miss Daddy, but make the most of memories and experience new things and continue to celebrate too, and all of that being okay. And all the feelings that they have to be okay. And just basically trying to live a life that I know Chris would have wanted us to have. I know he wanted us to have a good, happy life. A life that he would be proud of, but that we can be proud of as well. And it really... <laughs> I know this this bit has been a bit doom and gloom and a bit a bit sad. Um, I just needed to set the foundations, really, of where I'm coming from. But it's not always, it's really not always doom and gloom. This We still have a lot of laughter. Obviously, some days are much easier than others. And I want to be, to- I want to be able to talk about all of that, um, all of that too. And just really normalise the whole grief process and living with grief and loss. I'm hoping that by sharing my story and experiences, it may help someone or bring someone comfort who is going through a similar situation. It might help them feel less alone because it really is lonely. Or or you might be a friend listening, wondering the best ways to support someone. And I'm hoping by sharing and opening the conversation, we can make the world a little bit closer. So to the name. I'm not sure if you'll have picked up on it a little earlier. I don't think I re- made it really clear, although I did go into a little bit of detail and touched on it. I decided to call this podcast after because I wanted to explore how people look for themselves, for peace, for how to live, how people learn and how people live after something life-changing happens. I actually have a blog and a friend once said I should write a book and I was like, it is something that, I, you know, it's a bucket list thing that I might get round to one day. But I said I would have absolutely no idea where to start. And he said I should just start at the beginning. And I was like, That's it. that is a good place to start. But then uh, after thinking about it, but really there is no one beginning. There are hundreds of beginnings and they all come after. So I think we've reached the end of this episode one. I think that's a fairly good introduction to what you might expect from this podcast. Hopefully you will join me again. Um, I just want to say thank you for listening. Obviously, it is my first ever podcast, so I was a little bit nervous at the beginning. And there is so much to talk about, so I hope I've not bombarded you all too soon. I will be back. In the meantime, you can follow me on social media. You can find me on Insta and Twitter at Beeks, which is at B-E-E-C-K-Z. 
I'd love to hear what you thought of this episode and any comments you've got if you've got any questions or there's something you'd like me to talk about or a subject you'd like me to cover please do let me know and get in touch and as I mentioned earlier I do also have a blog it's currently called Diary of a Fat Bottom Girl it's after the Queen song um so if you want to go over and have a read of that there is some writing on there that I wrote during Chris's treatment and after so that's diaryofafatbottomgirl.com just want to say thank you to bensound.com for the use of music throughout this episode and I really hope to have you back for the next episode see you then